Uh, good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey, uh, and as I look around, I know all of you. So it's great to see you again this morning. <laughs> I was just making sure I might have missed. Yes, good to see you this morning. It's an honor to be with you, uh, to be preaching the word of God. Um, and, uh, and I want to encourage you that the sermon this morning, I'm, I'm excited to dig into to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, and as we dig in, this, this meaty text, um, one of the incredible things about God's word um, is that it actually has to do with our daily lives. This text from 2,000 years ago, we read from the Old Testament. Those are texts from three, 4,000 years ago. Um, these texts actually have real bearing on our lives. How? Uh, exactly what Taylor, who preached really the first half of my sermon, so I can, I'll only give you the last about 45 minutes of my sermon. Um, uh, but really, the, what makes God's word effective is his spirit. And so um, what I want to do right now, just real quick, I don't usually do this, not because it's bad, but I want to pray again just to ask God in um, uh, that he would weave these truths powerfully in our hearts. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Your word is meaningless to us without your spirit. Your word is folly to us without the work of your spirit, weaving it as true into the fabric of our souls. So would you do that this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, so as we dig into to 1 Corinthians chapter three, uh, uh, thus far, to give a little bit of context, thus far Paul in his letter to the Corinthians has been focusing really on one thing um, and he's been exploring how it manifests itself. Really the Corinthian church is experiencing issues that have to do with their misunderstanding of the gospel and what it has to do with their lives. As Paul had begun in chapter one, he began with the word of thanksgiving that was incredibly encouraging uh, to the Corinthian church and surprising considering the contents of the rest of the letter, but he gives this thanksgiving. And then he goes in and jumps straight to the point. He says, you guys are divided. You guys are living according, with the, according to the flesh. You're divided over leaders, these celebrity teachers who you've turned into celebrities. Uh, and, and you're arguing about who's the best one to follow. Uh, and so he's, he rebukes them for this. Probably had to do with different things that the leaders were saying or different ways that the leaders were talking. But um, whatever the problem was, whatever the issue was, the issue, really the heart issue for Paul was that their eyes were on these earthly leaders and not on their heavenly leader, Christ himself. And so Paul, you know, he, he goes through a number of things. He addresses wisdom. He reminds them that the gospel isn't a set of philosophical principles to understand. Uh, but the gospel is a person, Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross as the ultimate kind of paradox, the ultimate paradoxical display of power through human weakness. It's not about human wisdom or human leaders. It's about the wisdom of God, which appears foolish to the world. We've talked about this for weeks now. Uh, and, and then last week, we, we looked at how Paul explained that this wisdom comes to mature believers, spiritual people who have been given the very mind of Christ. So that's what we finished with, that phrase, the mind. we've been given the mind of Christ. Uh, and, and today in chapter three, Paul ties together a lot of what he's been talking about. Uh, and here's what he's doing. Essentially, he's work, like I said, he's working to correct their misunderstanding, but specifically, he's working to correct their misunderstanding of their place in redemptive history. They don't understand where they are in the context of redemptive history. And here's what I mean by that. In a sense, the Corinthians believe and they're living as though they're already in heaven, right? As it's evident from the way that they're living their lives, they believe that because of what Christ has done, everything in the world is good. 
And so they enjoy it. If it feels good, if it seems good, if it seems right, then it is good and it is right. What they don't realize um, is, that, is that the world has yet to be made new and there is still a war going on, a war for their very souls. Uh, the world around is still subject to the effects of sin. The Corinthians need to take heed lest they fall back into subjection to the things from which they've been released. As it says in 1 John 5, verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There is real spiritual power under which the world is bound. And the Corinthians are missing this. They don't get that, 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 that we're still awaiting the new heavens and new earth. And so Paul has been patiently but firmly calling them back to the gospel and to a right understanding of what it means for their lives. And as we look at what he says to them here in chapter three, I think Paul's driving desire is that he wants them to understand that how they live in this life matters. And that's really, I guess, that could be the theme of the whole book. <laughs> but in this text in particular, we see that Paul is concerned that they understand that how they live, what they do, in this life matters. The gospel has real present day implications for how they should live their lives. And this sounds simple, probably. Might sound simple, like, okay, this has, my, my faith has to do with my real life. That sounds like a simple concept, but I think it's so timely for us too in our culture, not just because Houston is basically a modern day Corinth in many ways, like Taylor talked about a few weeks ago, but because our Christian culture in particular uh, in particular, how American Christianity is understood by many is in dire need, I think, of correction. You may have heard the gospel story told in four parts. You know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, alternatively, creation, decreation, recreation, new creation. Whatever terms you use, here's the outline. God created all things and he created them good. At some point, sin entered the world and humans, God's, the crown of God's creation fell from his presence, were cast out of his presence as a result of their sin. The third part of the story is that God sent Jesus Christ to die, to reconcile us to God and to bring us back in actually to God's presence, to where we are now sprinkled clean and can be in God's presence without being consumed. And the end of the story is that we are, we are yet awaiting, we whose hearts have been sprinkled clean are awaiting the return of Christ for us and the, and the recreation of everything. Nothing bad shall remain, only what is good. So that's the story. It's a beautiful story. And the American church historically has done a really good job of talking about the middle two parts of that story, fall and redemption. We've been really good at addressing the sinfulness of humanity and our need for a savior, which is Jesus Christ, and that Really, all we need to do is believe on him and then we'll get to heaven. And this is good to do well, right? It's important that we grasp that. That is true. What we haven't been so good at, though, is addressing the first and last parts, which is just as important. We haven't really done a good job of, of talking about creation and how God created things good. And that even though this world is marred by sin, every, nothing in this world is untouched by sin. We are still referred to as image bearers of the God of creation. We don't emphasize new creation. We don't understand. We don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the fact that God is making all things new, which appears repeatedly uh, throughout the Bible, and that his plan is ultimately to restore it to its full form. It's not some ethereal heaven-like place that's not physical. He's restoring the physical creation. Resurrection bodies is what we await. Not resurrection, but really spiritual existence. We will be living bodily in this new creation. And when you start looking for the, and, and so um, because we, you know, 
excuse me, when you start looking for implications of the creation, new creation, you start to see all things, you know, like things all over the New Testament point to the fact that God in Christ has broken this new creation into the present. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter five. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? Remember how Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven. And I can't wait to get there. That's not what he said. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us to pray that 2000 years ago. Saints, Christians have been praying that for 2000 years and seeing God answer that prayer as his heavenly reality has been brought to bear on the present creation, right? But historically, we as Americans haven't been very good at emphasizing this. We've zoomed in all of our energy on fall redemption, profess faith, fall redemption, profess faith, sin and the savior. And unfortunately we've left off these other things as secondary, which really means we've, we've left these things off as unimportant. We, we're, we're dominated by the fact that, that that you need to get yourself safe, saved. And the Christian life is simply a process of reaffirming that you're saved. Right? Rehearsing gospel facts that you believed one time. Um, and then maybe if you didn't believe it, you'll get baptized again because that is another proclamation um, that you, you are a Christian. Um, and so, you know, a number of you have probably been baptized a number of times um, because at one point you didn't really grasp sin and Jesus, but then you did grasp it. And then later on, you did grasp it. And I'm not making fun of that. I'm critiquing it in a way that I think that Paul is critiquing it and saying, we, we spend a whole lot of time emphasizing that and not a whole lot of time emphasizing what we've been saved to. You might, you might have heard it that way. We're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. And if we, all we talk about is being saved from sin and the wrath of God, then that's a hollow gospel because it's only part of the story. What it misses is that once you're saved in this life, you have a lifetime left to work out what that means. It's often said this way, Christ died not just to save us. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> I inverted the order of that. So Christ died to save us to something. And what is it that Christ saved us to? A life of pursuit, a life of faithfulness, a life of growth and maturity. The goal is not merely to be saved. The goal is to be made like Jesus in full maturity. Ephesians 4.13, Paul says that, his, that God's desire is that you grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so that's what Paul's talking about here in chapter three. Let's jump right into what the words say. Uh, verse one begins, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for you are still of the flesh. Spiritual people, this is what Paul's talking about. Spiritual people, he has just said in chapter two, are the ones who can fully avail themselves of what God has to offer. Right? They are the ones whom, to whom the wisdom of God comes through the spirit. And here Paul zooms into their problem. What he essentially says is this. He says, just because you have the spirit of God in you, just because you have been given the mind of Christ, which he's just said, doesn't mean that you automatically have divine wisdom doesn't mean that you automatically comprehend divine wisdom. This wisdom, this ability to, to understand and comprehend is something that grows. It's something that must be developed over time with intentionality and care. Paul refers to the fact that when he left them, he left them as infants in Christ. 
Paul says he could not address them as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he fed them with milk rather than solid food. And this is huge. Right off the bat, a number of things. Right off the bat, Paul uses a phrase that you might be familiar with. He says, in Christ, you are infants in Christ. He makes it clear that he's addressing Christians as Christians. He's not looking to heap shame on them, lead them to question their salvation. He is inviting them simply to live into their calling, to which he says, you have been called. You are in Christ. You were infants in Christ, and so I fed you with milk. You're infants, but you're in Christ nonetheless. The problem, though, that we see in verse 2 is that they're still as he left them. So Paul's talking in the past tense. He says, I preached this to you. I fed you with milk. Here you are. You're still in this situation. And let's dig into this a little bit. Paul gives us a phys- this physical analogy to help, uh, to help us understand a spiritual reality. The spiritual life is a life of progress, right? Um, a, a life of on- growing onward to maturity, which begins very much like biological life, like that of an infant. And this is a rich analogy. For start- analogies, uh, so, so for starters, when you're saved, you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. You're a new creation, born again, as Jesus says in John chapter three. You're totally new, but you're also totally unable to care for yourself. Uh, the first few months of a child's life um, are referred to, you might've heard this phrase, the fourth trimester of pregnancy, right? The first few months, because nothing, a newborn, newborn, everything happens to them. They don't happen to anything else. They're totally dependent on mom. Even though they're outside of the womb, they might as well <laughs> still be inside the womb, right? They can't do anything. They can't discern an object from another object with their eyes. They can't reach out and touch something on purpose, much less pick it up and use it as it should be used. Um, so as an infant, you need to be grown, In typical development, at some point, you'll be able to look someone in the eyes. And eventually you learn to crawl and talk and walk on your own, even learn on your own. And then your whole life, and as some of our more experienced brothers and sisters can attest, your whole life is a life of continued growth and continued learning. As Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 2, uh, we are called to the task of, of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's a process that doesn't stop until we die, right? So in in comparing the spiritual life to being born as an infant, Paul is giving us a rich picture of what we can expect in the spiritual life in Christ. We are born again as infants in need of spiritual nourishment and spiritual growth towards maturity. In verse two, Paul takes us further. Uh, He starts it in the past tense, like I said, uh, referring to the first time he preached to them, which was likely the first time he believed. And he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. When they were infants, Paul treated them like infants, which meant feeding them with milk, not solid food. And let me pause here for just a moment and talk about what I think this means. The comparison of milk and solid food is a rich comparison. It appears in at least three places in the New Testament, here uh, in Hebrews chapter 5 and also in 1 Peter 2. So what does this mean? What is milk? What is solid food? Typically, people think that milk refers to simpler things in the Bible, and solid food refers to more complex or difficult things in the Bible. And I don't think this is the right way of seeing this. Um, think about what Paul's talking about in context. Uh, to borrow a little bit from what Taylor, Taylor said over the, over the past few weeks, Paul has been talking about the difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this age is one way he refers to it repeatedly, and the wisdom of the age to come. Right? And what Paul has been doing as I mentioned earlier, is showing that what Christ has done in his earthly ministry means that the age to come has broken into the present. Heaven has broken into the world 
in which we live through the work of Christ in the church in bringing in, in giving new birth. Every time someone comes to faith, God is working, bringing heaven to bear in the present. Let me try to explain in a nutshell what really could be and should be a full sermon, but let me try in a nutshell to explain what I mean. When Christ died and rose again, uh, he dealt with sin completely, right? He dealt with its power. He dealt with its penalty so that we could be brought back into relationship with God. That's huge. But there's more than that, right? After Jesus rose again, he ascended into heaven, right? To take his place as our great high priest, our heavenly priest, the mediator between us and God. And he is serving now as the head of a heavenly priesthood, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. You and me, brothers and sisters, the church, we are priests. God is bringing this heavenly priesthood to bear on earth as it is in heaven. And the crazy thing is that when we're made one with Christ, we are brought into the blessings of the gospel by grace through faith. And what that one of those things is that we are made priests in this royal priesthood. Here's what that has to do with milk and solid food. Writer to the Hebrews, um, like I so Hebrews chapter five, something very similar appears. Um, let me read it. Hebrews five says this, starting in verse nine. It says, being made perfect, Jesus was, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you can hear the crescendo in the writer's voice. He's getting excited to talk about the implications of this heavenly priesthood. Then he says this, about this, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. It goes on, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the writer of the Hebrews, I think, is giving us some very helpful intel as to what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 3. What that passage in Hebrews seems to teach us is that milk refers to what Jesus Christ did on earth in his earthly ministry. And that solid food refers to what Jesus is doing now in and through the ministry of the church, which is the royal priesthood of God. The, the writer of the Hebrews wanted to teach his readers about this heavenly priesthood of Jesus Christ and what this means for their lives, but he couldn't do it because his readers were too immature. They weren't ready for that solid food. And I'm convinced that the writer of the Hebrews and Paul here in 1 Corinthians are talking about the same thing. That is the difference between milk and solid food is the difference between understanding the reality and implications of Christ's earthly ministry in the past and comprehending the reality and implications of Christ's current heavenly ministry and what that means for the present day-to-day -day life of Christian believers. In other words, milk has to do with what God did then in the past Solid food is what God is doing now through the church. And that latter part, and there is overlap, forgive me, like I said, it should be a whole sermon. There's overlap, but here's the thing, that latter part, grasping what God is doing today, taking an active role in participating in the heavenly priesthood requires for Paul, for the writer of the Hebrews, maturity. Elsewhere, Paul talks about this battle that's going on in the heavenly realm. And remember what Paul says about this battle in Ephesians 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Right, so Paul's like, this is, this is a big deal. In the heavenly realm, the devil has schemes. There's rulers, there's authorities, there's cosmic powers warring for souls. And I think that what Paul's talking about here is that he wants these Corinthians to engage in this battle, lean into the spiritual power and authority that God has given them, but they are not yet ready for this solid food. They don't yet have the foundation that is required to go to the front, lights, front lines with the strength and vigor that God has made available to them. Because how can you engage with that cosmic battle that's going on at present if you don't understand what happened at the cross? For you, if you don't understand your freedom, how can you tell someone else about their freedom? Milk and solid food. Years ago, I was watching a World War II era uh, movie about life in one of the Nazi concentration camps. I think this is from The Pianist, the movie. I can't remember exactly which movie, but there's this scene at the end where one of the concentration camps is liberated by the Allied forces. And these Allied forces bring in this bring in all kinds of water and they're feeding water to these, to these people who've been starved and are dying of thirst. And all of a sudden, these people start dropping left and right. And one of the generals comes in and says, stop, 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 don't give them water. They haven't had this for years. They're gonna drink themselves to death. Water, something so basic as water, they couldn't even handle because their bodies were so famished. Right, to drink water, the, the water of life, right? The most basic element of life. Um, was too much for them. They couldn't handle it. So like solid food for an infant who's not yet ready will just do a number on their body. Participation on the front lines of the spiritual battle that we're in and availing ourselves, seeking to try to lean into all the power and authority that God's given us in Christ takes maturity or else it will be quite dangerous. The Corinthians needed to learn the gospel. You need to learn the gospel. You need the milk of what Christ has done for you. Um, They needed to learn what Christ did in his earthly ministry, what that means for their lives so that they can have a foundation upon which to stand as they begin to understand the heavenly implications of what's going on right now, what God's doing through them. Let me clarify one thing. The problem is not necessarily the fact that these Corinthians are infants, right? All who are newly saved, all who are newly saved are infants in Christ. And if you think about that, yeah, infants in Christ, that's not the problem though. The problem is not that they're infants. The problem is that they are still infants. Paul says, verse two, even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh, beginning of verse three. They should have been eating solid food by this point, but they were still only capable of digesting milk, which means kind of by inference that they were not actually drinking the milk that Paul had been giving them. You see, milk nourishes for growth. As a child grows, their digestive system develops to the point where they can start moving on to solid food and that takes consumption of milk. Moving from infancy to mature adulthood is a process with some telltale telltale signs of growth. And if milk is properly ingested and digested, it will lead to these signs of growth. Similarly, moving from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity comes with some telltale signs of growth that Paul is not seeing. Verse two, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. How does God, or how does Paul know that they need this milk? What does Paul see in their lives? Looking at their lives, he sees that they are people of the flesh. That is that they're people driven by their human desires and their human drives. And what does Paul point to? Verses three and four, jealousy, strife, looking to earthly leaders as their authorities. It's, it is the gospel that they have heard, in other words, 
right? Is the gospel that they've heard, and Paul's clear that they've heard it before in the way that he talks about it, is the gospel that they heard affecting their lives, driving them to put to death the flesh and come alive in the spirit? No, it's not. Rather than being a community marked by the contentment and unity that the word of God and the spirit of God brings, they're a community marked by jealousy and strife, arguing about earthly things and earthly leaders. And here's the thing. The problem with the Corinthians isn't really a knowledge problem, right? Um, it's not as though all they need to do is get more knowledge and then they'll be mature, right? Spiritual maturity and doctrinal knowledge are two different things. Maturity and knowledge are two different things. They often go hand in hand. They're very related, don't get me wrong, but they are two different things. You do not get to spiritual maturity in your head. You get to spiritual maturity maturity with your hands and with your heart through the grace and power of God. An infant doesn't grow up simply by thinking about growing up. They need to eat. They need to be active in ingesting this food, ingesting the nourishment that is given to them. It is a problem when a baby cannot eat the food that is placed in their mouth. Similarly, it is a problem when you do not masticate, when you do not chew and ingest and play an active part in digesting the milk that God has given you. Because listen, you can have spiritual maturity and you can have spiritual maturity with very little doctrinal knowledge of what we would consider the hard doctrines of the faith. Some of the most mature believers are some of the most simple people. And I don't mean that pejoratively. You can also know all the hard doctrines and extensive theological vocabulary there is to know and be an infant in Christ. In fact, you can know that and not be a Christian at all. As James wrote in James chapter two, faith without works is dead. To paraphrase what he says after that, he says, if you say you have faith, show me your works and I'll tell you whether you actually have faith. Here's what he means. He means that faith is made perfect through obedience to the law of Christ. Faith is made perfect through obedience, through walking in the way that God has given us in his word. Paul writes a number of times about what he calls the obedience of faith. What's he talking about? Paul's talking about people looking at the cross, the people of God looking at the cross, what it means for their lives, applying its truth to their lives, right? That they've been broken from the power of sin uh, and they're free to live lives in accordance with the law of God, which is now written on their hearts by the spirit. That's what Paul means by the obedience of faith. Jesus himself is the perfect example of the one who fulfilled the law of God. He loved God perfectly and he loved his neighbor perfectly. His invitation to you is not just to think about how I did that. His invitation is to do that. Walk in my ways, walk, follow in the footsteps of Christ. Be his hands and feet in the world. As you fix your eyes on Christ through his word, And the Holy Spirit empowers you to live a life that looks increasingly like his, as foolish as it may seem. We've talked about this for weeks. As foolish as following in pursuit of Jesus might look to the world. As God does this, as God works on you through the Holy Spirit and helps you walk in this way, you are growing in maturity and he is preparing you for the solid food that he wants you to eat. (laughs) He's preparing you for the ministry to which he's called you. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. So gorge yourself on the milk that is being offered so that God might through his word and by his spirit grow you in faith and obedience, preparing you through constant practice to discern between good and evil so that you're ready for the solid food that God presents you with in his timing. 
And that's what this nourishing milk does. When you, by faith, ingest this spiritual milk that Paul's talking about, it grows you and it will show itself in your life of obedience, in your life of faithfulness, in your life of power. You won't be perfect, but you will be looking more and more like Jesus as you live your life. Uh, 2 Peter chapter one has this glorious passage where Peter writes to to these churches. And he says, if these qualities, he lists all these qualities. He says, God's divine power has granted to you all things that pertain in God to life and godliness. And he lists these qualities, brotherly love, affection, all these good spiritual fruits. And he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, you'll be kept from being unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, if you have these qualities perfectly, (laughs) he says, if you have those qualities and they're increasing. Growth is God's desire for your and my life today. When we had Tallulah, um, our first child, by God's grace, Lindsay was able to breastfeed Tallulah. Uh, but it didn't, uh, it didn't come easily. Um, she was a fussy newborn. Uh, when Lindsay went back to work, she started pumping and she never pumped as much as she thought that she should. And um, we were always worried that Tallulah wasn't getting enough milk. Always, it was, a, it was a hard season. And meanwhile, we had friends who like had like eight deep freezers filled with gallons of breast milk. And we only had like two extra bottles at any given moment. Um, but when we went to the doctor, the doctor looked at Tallulah and said, you guys are doing fine. She's like, I'm not worried about the quantity of milk if I see these things. It's not the quantity (laughs) of milk. It is, are you exhibiting the characteristics that God says you're exhibiting, that that you are to exhibit? Don't worry. It's not that you need to just, you need to just eat more. You need to spend that three hours in the Bible instead of two. Maybe that's the problem. No, patiently expecting God to do his work, the quality of the food. Um, Many of you have great aspirations. Uh, I've talked to many of you about this. Many of you have great aspirations um, of doing great things for the Lord, ministering to coworkers, reaching your neighbors for Christ. And for many of you, those are probably still in the realm of aspirations because you haven't experienced much of it yet. You haven't seen the fruit that you had hoped that God would have borne by now in your life. Maybe your unfruitfulness in that regard now is God's patience with you and his kindness to you, protecting you from charging into a situation that you're unprepared for. Maybe God is using this season for you to point out to you that you need to nourish yourself with the milk that he's placing before you so that you can be equipped for the solid food that he has you hungry for. Listen, you do not need to be scared of your neighbors. This is an important clarification. You do not need to be scared of ministry. You do not need to be afraid of walking around thinking, ooh, maybe I'm not equipped for what is right in front of me because we know from elsewhere that that's not true. God never gives you more than, than he has prepared you for. But, um, so, so, so yeah, so Paul's point, what I'm saying here is not be afraid of hard ministry, front lines ministry. That's not what I'm saying at all. What Paul is saying, I think, is that we do not need to be unwise. If you are spiritually malnourished, is it a good idea for you to go engage in sex trafficking ministry on the front lines? If you are spiritually malnourished, is it a good idea for you to go into your neighbor's house who's a staunch atheist and ask them to ask you any question they have about Christianity? What if they ask you a question you don't know the answer to? What if they cause a seed of doubt in your heart that you don't have a foundation on which to stand and deal with that? You don't even remember the way back to the foundation. If you're spiritually malnourished, should you engage in frontlines homeless ministry, which is some of the hardest ministry that just chews up and spits out faithful believers who aren't ready for the betrayal 
and the manipulation that often occurs in the context of homeless ministry. If you're wondering why your life hasn't borne the fruit you've been hoping to see, then what I would say is this, stop working for fruit and start working for faithfulness. If you're struggling with small things, by God's grace, he is not going to give you bigger things. I hope he doesn't. As Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Have you been faithfully nourishing yourself with the milk of the gospel? Have you been faithfully digging into God's word, into prayer? Are you availing yourselves? of the regular rhythms of grace, gathering with the people of God, hearing God's word preached, partaking of communion, singing with the people of God, tasting and seeing the goodness of God? Or are you just doing these things when it's convenient, taking it pretty lightly when you miss a Sunday gathering because I'll just, I'll make it when I need, I don't really need it. Right? Are, you, are, you taking, uh, are you taking it lightly that you don't really spend any time in the word or prayer right now? Maybe one day you will miraculously have a passion ignited in your heart about it? Are you walking this life pretty much on your own rather than leaning in to serve and be served within the family of God, your brothers and sisters that God has given you? If these things are the case, then, then you probably are in need of milk, not solid food. Right? And here's the thing. <laughs> Paul's invitation and my invitation to you is not, you need to feel really bad about yourself if, that, if that's you. <laughs> Paul's invitation is drink it. <laughs> Simply that. He says, drink the milk because it will grow you into maturity. Look at Christ. Look at the foundation. Do, look, drink. It's right in front of you. Do it. When was the last time? If you, if you're one, one example, if you are having a hard time getting motivated to get into the word, when was the last time you asked a brother or sister in Christ to pray for you that God would ignite passion in your heart for reading the word? sounds simple, but when was the last time you did it? <laughs> Today, ask someone, come up to someone and be prayed for during communion. Talk to people in your parish about that. Ask people to pray for you. <laughs> Lean into these basic, eat the milk, feed on the milk that God has placed in front of you. Sin, or excuse me, sitting in guilt, shame, and self-condemnation is not the goal here. Uh, guilt, shame, and condemnation doesn't come from the Lord. Lean into the Lord, ask him to forgive you, to propel you forward, that he might give you the faith and strength that you need to pursue him in earnest. Be faithful with, faithful with these things, brothers and sisters. These are the little things that God invites you to be faithful with so that he can grow you and then entrust you with larger things. And remember, God bears the fruit, not you. The flesh, your flesh says that this spiritual blessing, this spiritual fruit is yours to chase, but it's God's. Don't work for fruit, work for faithfulness. Fruitfulness is not in your hands. Faithfulness by God's grace and along with God is in your hands. And watch as you dig into faithfulness, watch and wait with expectation as God prepares you to bear the fruit that he plans to bear for you. And that's what Paul moves on to explore. And I've spent 35 minutes in that first few verses of this passage, I did that on purpose because I think that that for the Lord, that is the message that we need to hear right now. The gospel has, has, has real implications for your life. And often many of us are masquerading, saying things that like, oh, this really should be true, wondering in our minds, why is this not true? Paul's encouragement is go, eat the milk. Eat the milk, brothers and sisters. Very quickly, let's look at this next section. Paul talks about 
starting in verse five, he, he, he goes on and he then clarifies, what is Apollos? What is Paul? We're merely servants. And then he gives these metaphors of, of, of being a harvester and, and uh, being, a, being a gardener, a farmer, and then being a builder, building on the foundation, which is Christ. And then he ends this middle section in 16 and 17, talking about the temple of God and how we are the temple of God. And a couple of things here. Paul, I think, is still on the topic of what he's been talking about. He's talking about faithfulness. What does faithfulness look like? Faithfulness is simply leaning into what God has given to you so that you can watch as God does the work in your life. He gives two metaphors, farmers, verse six, and then later on he gets to builders. But for farmers, Paul says, we plant and water. He talks about Apollos and Paul. He said, we're farmers. We're merely servants of God. We are planting we are watering, but only God gives the growth, right? The Corinthians are looking to their leaders, giving allegiance to their leaders, thinking, man, this leader is what I really need. And Paul says, get that out of here. What you need is God. God is the one who gives the growth. You need your teachers. We are being faithful to the work that God has given us and God's using it for you. But ultimately, don't miss the emphasis. It's not, the emphasis is not us being used. It is on God using us, his servants, Paulus and Paul are merely servants assigned by the Lord to you. So they planted and watered. They planted and watered, but God gives the growth. And if you think about it, if you've ever planted a, something in the yard, in the garden, I uh, dug up our backyard, which is just kind of a slab of dirt, and I planted grass about a month ago. Um, it was a lot, it was very hard work, and I made it really hard on myself. I didn't use the right tools, but I worked hard for like a whole day digging up this little like ten by ten foot <laughs> uh, square of dirt. Um, and, uh, and so I did all this work. I dug up the sand. I, put a, I, got a, I went and bought a sprinkler and planted seeds and then I stopped and waited. Next day, I, the morning, like the next morning, I was looking out the window. I'm like, oh, is it? No, second morning, third morning. Eight days later, the first little shoot popped up, right? I was powerless <laughs> over the timing or the growth of these seeds. I was faithful I was kind of silly. I made it harder on myself, which we often do, but I was, I was faithful to what I needed to do. I dug and I planted the seeds and then I watered them. That's all I could do. God gives the growth. This is what Paul is saying. We do hard work and then we wait. We do what has been entrusted to us and leave to God alone what has been entrusted to God. We are nothing, Paul says. God is the only one who is anything. With that said, Paul says that we will receive wages for our labor. Verse eight, he who plants and he who waters are one and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. And this is a, this is a bit of a complex phrase um, that time does not permit us to explore fully. However, what I'll say is this, laborers in the field, like Paul and Apollos, like you and me are hard workers. They had a part to play in their ministry. You and I have a part to play in our ministry. And what Paul says here is that they will receive their wages. And we too will receive our wages. He expounds on this. Builders, he goes to talk about builders in verse nine. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And he transitions in verse 10 to talking about this building. He fleshes out this metaphor of a builder building on a foundation. And so Paul says, he says, I laid the foundation with the other apostles. He speaks about this in Ephesians 2. The, the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And, we, and all the work that we do since their special, unique apostolic ministry is building upon the foundation that they laid. And Paul is clear to say, this isn't the foundation of the apostles and prophets themselves. The foundation is Christ, Christ himself. Verse 11, 
And so next, all that's left is the work of building on the foundation. And listen to how Paul describes this work. He says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. So in other words, this is not a free-for-all. If you've ever seen a house being built, um, there's builders, the, the house behind us was torn down, gave us rats about eight weeks ago um, from the old house that was torn down, but they're now building this monstrosity, excuse me, this beautiful house behind us. Um, and, and it looks to the onlooker like a simple process. It's a well-oiled machine. You know, you lay the foundation, then you put up studs, and then you put on plank, and you put on the roof. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a logical process, but it's a thorough process that takes great care. You don't just show up. You don't have everyone just show up and saying, I'm gonna build the roof until the studs are put there. It's a, it's, if, and it's, if it's a house, you know, the, the type of wood that you use matters. And the budget that is given dictates the kinds of expenses you're allowed to, you know, you're, you're allowed to really be extravagant over here, but you need to kind of cut back over here. It's a very thorough, careful process of building a house. It takes a good contractor, if there is such a thing. It takes a good contractor. Um, okay. Um, uh, so, um, anyway, likewise, <laughs> it's a careful process. Likewise, Paul says, take great care how you build on the foundation that is Christ, right? Because the contractor is not you, it's not me. Speaking of if there is such a thing, there is such a thing as a good contractor, as a good master builder. God himself is building his people into this, this, this royal priesthood, building into a temple, a dwelling place for God by the spirit. God is the contractor. And you as the worker, you as the servant have been given a plan to follow. And that is disclosed fully in his word. And that becomes fully disclosed as God gives you wisdom through his Holy Spirit working powerfully to weave the truth of God's word, which is Christ himself, the foundation into your heart. There's, and, and, and there's different types of things that Paul goes into that can be built. Um, uh, uh, there's diff- yeah, there's different types of things that can be built. We watched some friends across, our, across the street from us um, build a house. Uh, this is back when we lived in the Heights. This is years ago. They were building a house right across the street and the builder was doing a great job. It looked great. But then when the, the owners, so I guess we're breaking the metaphor that I just gave. So God was the contractor in that one here. God is the, the one who orders the house to be built. They came and moved into their house across the street from us and realized that the plans that they had given the contractor, the contractor cut corners and he didn't actually do what they had asked him to do. Most of the structure was good, but it wound up costing the contractor something like $25,000 in these little, supposedly little fixes that he needed to make because he didn't heed the plans. He didn't listen to the plans. God is in charge of the process and we must follow the plans that he's given us. As Paul is saying, you are, you are the builder who's been entrusted with a project. And at some point he is going to come back and inspect your work. Verse 12, and if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. A couple things here. One, it will be tested by fire. There is coming a fearful day when all work will be tested. So be careful of what you're doing. It's not what we're playing with and deciding what to do this or that is not, oh, it's not gonna have no effect. It will be, God will come back and visit and evaluate the work that we've done, the structure that we've been building. Secondly, only build on the foundation. You can use the most precious jewels, stones, materials. And if you're building on a foundation that is not the one that God has given, you can have a beautiful looking structure, but it's built not on a foundation, but on sand. 
And what is, the, what is the metric that Paul gives here again? He says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So the question is, are you building on the foundation or not? Are you, are you in the work that you're doing and in the, in the life that you're living, building on the foundation that God has given? Or are you building on the foundation of something that looks good, sounds good, is wise, but it just comes from the wisdom of this age? Why does Paul use these two structures? Why does Paul clarify these things? It comes back to it in verse 16. This work of building, this work that we're doing is that of building God's temple. We are co-laborers and building the, the temple of God in which he is coming to dwell with his people. And that's a beautiful reality, right? He say, he, and, and God cares deeply about his temple. He says, if you destroy God's temple, you will be destroyed. There's a lot, I'm looking at the clock. Let me cut a little bit forward. The last thing I'll say about this metaphor is this. Building, farming is hard work. Building is hard work and they will take sacrifice. But with, with Paul pointing to reward, what he is saying to us is that what you give up in this life to build the way that God has chosen to build this structure, you will be rewarded for and you will not be disappointed in the reward you receive. Uh, Justin at the men's retreat last night or yesterday or the day before gave this quote um, of this, this woman in the 1800s who was right, she was in the middle of something nuts and paused to write this poem um, I can't give you her, I can't remember her name. What was her name? Okay, great. Um, but she wrote this poem and this is what it said. She said, give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of their wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out your heart in prayer for them victorious and all that thou spendest, Christ will repay. Right, in many parts of the world, this gospel work, building the foundation is a life or death matter but all that thou spendest, Christ will repay. And you brothers and sisters will not be disappointed in what you give up today when you get, when you reach that day and receive your reward. You will not be thinking, gosh, man, I really wish I had that car. I really wish I had that spouse. I really wish I had that child back and that that didn't happen to that child. There's, really, there, there's real consequences, real costs that will be paid, but you on that day will not look back and think, I made a bad choice. You won't miss that money. You won't miss what you have given up. Finally, God ends this chapter with a passage that I'm not gonna talk hardly at all about, verses 18 through 23. Uh, and he rounds up what he's been saying. Said, he, he goes back to wisdom, which he's been talking about for a number of chapters. He says, become a fool that you may become wise. He doesn't simply say the wisdom of God is better than the world. He says, uh, uh, he says, give up the wisdom of the world. He doesn't say the wisdom of God's better, but yours is still good. He says, get rid of yours and become a fool. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. Our best efforts based on our wisdom is, will end in futility. As Christians, we are called to live out the wisdom of the age to come in the present day. God's kingdom, right, is actually here on earth as it is in heaven. 
It's not you'll get to heaven and then be wise. It's you get to lean into the spirit of the Lord and be wise today in the spirit. By contrast, the wisdom of this world is the wisdom of the flesh. And it will see no different outcome than it always has, sin, division, and death. The word of God bring unity and life and love. The wisdom of the world and man bring death, division, and sin. So Paul's call here as he closes this passage is clear, conscious rejection of the wisdom of the world. What will people say when I do this? What will people think when I do this? Paul says, what does the gospel say? What does, what does your heavenly father think about this work that you're doing? So ask yourself this question that I think the text is asking us, what kind of wisdom, what kind of wisdom do you rest in? What kind of wisdom defines your reality? Are you wise in this age, wise in the wisdom of this world? Is that what you're filling yourself with? Are you, are you taking in the milk and solid food that the world is giving you? Are you taking in the milk and solid food that God has given you? And if you lack wisdom, if you lack any of these things, James 1 verse five is one of the most clear promises about this thing. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask. (laughs) If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, who generously gives to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Ask, God will give it to you. Listen after you ask. So, As I close, four quick words of application. One, consider your diet is what Paul talks talks about here. Consider your diet. Are you drinking the milk of the gospel or are you seeking to rest in and fill yourself with wisdom from elsewhere? Are you spending time in the word of God? A couple of things in the middle section um, that I said might've made you uh, uh, balk or feel a little bit uncomfortable because we are hypersensitive to anything that sounds like legalism. When, I say th- when we say things like what you do in this life matters, you receive a reward for the good things that you do. For the good building that you do on the foundation, you will be rewarded. Some of you might think, oh, that sounds a whole lot like legalism. And don't get me wrong, legalism is definitely something that we should run from. Legalism, uh, legalism is wrong. But when you're in the world regularly, when you're drinking the milk that God has given you, seeking to grow in maturity so that you can take in the solid food that God desires to give you. When you're in the word, one of the things that you start to realize is that legalism and obedience are not the same thing. Legalism is a perversion of the obedience that God is clear that he is after throughout the scriptures. When you're not in the word and you hear people talk about legalism, how bad it is to try to earn anything from God, you might start to live as though you think it's bad to try to obey that somehow obedience will, be, will come through a miracle of God by no doing of your own. But that's not how the Bible talks about obedience. Faith without works is dead. Paul looks to them and says, here's the milk, you need to drink it. When you're in the word, you'll see that not obeying in earnest is not an option for the believer. Consider your diet become a fool in the world's eyes by taking in the milk of the gospel as God prepares you for the solid food that he wants to give you. Second point of application, consider your works. What are you building? Where are you building it? And what are you using as the plan for your building? Third, and finally, remember brothers and sisters, 
that you are God's temple. (laughs) We as the church are the temple of the living God. And you are not brought in by any of this, any of this building stuff that we've been talking about. That's not what brings you into being a member of this temple. Look at what Paul says in, uh, in verse 15. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. What? <laughs> if, any of you, if, if any of your work is burned up, you will suffer loss, though you yourself will be saved. Why, is Paul, why can Paul say that? Because this work that we're talking about, this building, this ministry to which God has called us to, once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And you can make mistakes. You can build bad buildings when you're in Christ and that will be burned up, but you're in Christ. You have been made a part of the temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of God dwelling in this world. You have been made a part of that through no good of your own, through no work of your own, but by the work of God alone, by the love of God alone. And how do you access that? Simply by faith in Christ. And all of this obedience is not faith itself. It is faith being made perfect through love. So remember that you are, God's, you are a member of God's temple, not by your work, but that you have been invited into this work of temple building. Everything that you do is eternally significant one way or another. And that you are, brothers and sisters, God's plan for pushing back the cosmic powers and authorities in the world today. So if you're not ready for that, if you're, if you're a Christian um, and you're sitting here thinking, thinking, man, I just am not experiencing any of this power. Like all that cosmic stuff, the heavenly priesthood, that sounds great, but, but, but I'm, not, I'm not experiencing any of that. I have all these dreams that, you know, we've been a church plant for two years, three years almost, and I'm starting to get a little bit disillusioned because I haven't really experienced the things that, that God has been, that I've thought that I would exp- have experienced by now. The invitation is not to get disillusioned and divide and just come back and be bitter. The, the, the invitation that Paul gives is just eat. God has placed in front of you. And God will grow you to a place where you can partake of the food that he wants to give you, the solid food, the ministry to which he's called you. It's a glorious opportunity we have in front of us, brothers and sisters, to engage with what God is doing. But there's an order and that order has to be followed. You need the milk before you can get to the solid food. And God is pleased to give it to you. Let me, put, let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us the way that you have loved us. Thank you for thank you for ministering to us in your Holy Spirit and filling us up, building us um, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I pray that you would minister to us through your word of truth. I pray that anything that I have said this morning that's unhelpful that you would graciously cause all of us to forget those words. And anything that is true, anything, any work that you are doing in our hearts, that you would continue that work and sustain it. Help us to place our trust and our faith in you. Help us to eat the food that you've placed before us. And Lord, we thirst, we hunger and thirst for the solid food that you desire to give us. So make us ready for that, Lord, and help us to to walk in that direction with your help, by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.